Last spring, when an Air National Guard member was found to have leaked secrets to the Discord website, it raised questions about how he got and kept his security clearance. My next guest spent three months looking at security clearance and found quite a few flaws. Raw Story reporter Alexandria Jacobson joins me now. Ms. Jacobson, good to have you on. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. And as your story points out, the clearance process is undergoing a kind of lengthy transformation. A few years ago, it moved out of the Office of Personnel Management and back to the Defense Department. They're trying to build a new system to report it, continuous monitoring and all these things. And these have been reported by GAO. What were you looking at and what did you find that we may not know about security clearance? So as you mentioned, back in April, as I'm sure everyone remembers, when the leak happened out of the Massachusetts Air National Guard with the low-level airman Jack Tajira, that really just prompted us to look at how could someone like that get through the vetting system and fall through the cracks. So around that time, we actually came across a report from clearance jobs that surveyed facility security officers who are responsible for tracking people with security clearances. And what that report showed was as much as 28% of the people surveyed their companies, their agencies, these contractors were still tracking people with consumer grade spreadsheets. So very unsecured practices and even worse, as much as 2% were using pen and paper. So that was shocking to us to hear in 2023 that people who have access to our nation's secrets, their information is not being held in a secure way. So That was really the impetus for the story. And we wanted to confirm that this is actually happening. Where is this happening? And so, indeed, we were able to, through the three-month investigation on Raw's story, really talk to a lot of folks in the government currently, former employees, national security experts who said that this is indeed still a problem that happens. It tends to happen at the local federal agency level, as well as with contractors. So this, the government trusted workforce 2.0, as you mentioned, this reform effort is certainly making strides to have a more consolidated system that everyone is using to vet and track their security cleared personnel. But where the breakdown seems to still be happening is that local level, smaller contractors might have additional internal systems that they're using that the government isn't privy to track folks with security clearances. Sure. In the case of Teixeira, I guess on a technical standpoint, he passed all of the tests that are in place to get security clearance. He was American. He didn't have any foreign ties. But there were clues to his nature that might have been found in other means, which we understood was supposed to be part of this total look at someone, which is I guess he posted odd stuff on social media that no one picked up? That's right. And so so definitely we started the investigation looking at these old school practices. And then as I talked with experts, we learned about some other areas that are missing in the system. So publicly available online information or social media is not regularly and consistently used in the vetting process. So as you just referenced with Tajira, he had, you know, after the fact, reporting came out that he had frequently posted about violence, racist beliefs, mistrust of the government, which certainly would be a red flag for someone going for a security clearance for their job. So when I talked with the government, they told me that indeed, since 2016, there is the option to be able to investigate someone's publicly available information, but it's just not consistently enforced. So some agencies might do it across the board, some might not do it at all, and others might do it just if something gets flagged. And then with the new reform effort, Trusted Workforce 2.0, a big part of that is called continuous vetting. So that means that there's an automated process where 
once someone has a clearance, their information is being run against public records, arrest reports, credit reports, et cetera. But that does not include social media. Currently, it's a very manual process that's tedious and isn't included in that process. We're speaking with Alexandria Jacobson. She's an investigative reporter with the Raw Story site. And then I guess maybe you probably found also that the criteria might need to be updated because someone who could be a racist or someone who could be a communist or something, I mean, you know, we've got the Chelsea Manning case going back a number of years. Those aren't, well, maybe communism is, but a lot of those things are not specifically prohibited for someone getting security clearance on the justification that, well, it doesn't matter what they think privately as long as they don't give up secrets. And it sounds like there's a disconnect between perhaps what people might think and their propensity to violate their clearance that they've been granted. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, in, in reality, experts, the government says it's hard to predict, you know, every single person that might be a bad actor or someone that, yeah, they can have their private thoughts and are they actually going to act on it? From what I've learned in my reporting is that by not including this publicly available information in the search that could tip off the government to people that might actually act on these beliefs, that's a really big red flag and potential information that the government is missing out on. Plus, it still takes a long time to get security clearance, and both agencies and contractors say they need people to just continue the work of the government. That's an ongoing issue also. Absolutely. Back in 2017, there was a backlog of investigation processes that took as much as two to three years for someone to get a clearance. So that has certainly much improved, but it still definitely takes months. People looking for clearances need to fill out a hundred plus page form. It's a really intensive process. And as with much of the experts I talked to said, there is still a talent problem with having enough people to vet those that need security clearances. So there's definitely a bit of that tension there as well to making sure there's enough folks that can do the actual process of checking folks thoroughly and quickly. And I want to get back to the attitudes and expressed views of people, because I imagine the government people that you spoke with mentioned the same thing, that what is it that should disqualify you from security clearance, even though it might be repugnant in some other domain? Should that be a disqualifier provided you'll keep a secret, well, if you're a bigot, so what? I mean, not to justify bigotry, but that question needs to be answered, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think in general, the government says they won't touch password protected information. That's certainly a line they won't cross. And people with security clearances I spoke to, some don't feel comfortable with having their social media evaluated in, in the process. And I, and I think that that's certainly a common concern. But I, yeah, it, it seems that they're needs to be a more consistent and clear way of evaluating this information and what would disqualify someone. So as we spoke about those, I think it's the major red flags that when people talk about wanting to exercise violence and mistrust of the government and things like that. Sure. I guess if you are willing to post those kinds of things about yourself on social media, you might kind of have an exhibitionist tendency to begin with. And then when you get hold of federal secrets, well, you've really got something to share at that point. That line could be drawn, too, I suppose. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, my colleague, Jordan Green, did a, a report on someone who was a neo-Nazi who was in the Marine Corps and had classified documents saved on his computer. So, again, that's someone that you, you certainly would think should not have a security clearance and you would hope would have been caught in the vetting process as well. And what kind of reaction did you get to this story? 
there's been a, a lot of interest, I think, just in the general public. Some of this information just is very much not transparent or readily available. So I think people are interested to learn about how the vetting process, uh, the, the complications of it, the lack of consistency in some areas. And so, yeah, so it's been really surprising, especially I'd say on the old school practices to to still hear that there are contractors and local agencies Using pen and paper is pretty shocking in this day and age. And not too many reporters are interested in the arcana of government operation, but (laughs) arcane as they might be, they still have a big effect on national security or many other public life factors. Absolutely. And yeah, this is very, very important information. And the folks that I, I spoke with, you know, unfortunately, this they predict that this was going to happen again. And so it's just really trying to get a grasp on are the reform efforts doing enough? Where are the holes? Making sure that they're they're being attended to. Alexandria Jacobson is a reporter with Raw Story. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or 
how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, 
I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture And what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful? So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture. Because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going, Um, because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. 
neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.